XTC had been around since the early 70s, 72-ish as kids. They were called Star Park. You know, they're like a ton of other suburban daydreaming kids. They're also sort of off kilter. There's this kind of like anorak, boffin uh, sort of goofiness, which is a kind of a way of communicating to the audience. Like we don't we're not really taking ourselves that seriously. There's not a lot of artifice or pose. It's more about entertainment. And, and maybe showing off a little bit, let's say. But it's not the artifice of, like, you know, the new wave of British heavy metal bands that come up there and they might as well be wearing fucking armor. Like, they're, they're just putting on such bravado and machismo and celebrity distance from the audience. XTC had none of that when they were uh, a budding sort of wannabe glam band. Today, you can go out and see really early grainy footage of them as Helium Kids in uh, 1974. So when they're this proto-teenage thing and they're not sure what they want to be and like Andy Partridge is wearing a bowler and their look is just a mess, they do get this incredible opportunity. They open for Thin Lizzy the month that Whiskey in the Jar cracks the top 10. It hit number six in February 73. They opened for them, I think in March or maybe it was May. And this is also, the I think, the month that the New York Dolls released their debut. A lot of crazy stuff happens for Andy Partridge, Colin Molding, and I mean their friend at this time, not in the band, Dave Gregory and Terry Chambers. So they, to have all of this happen in, in the space of just like two or three months, this is three years before the Sex Pistols do really anything anyone knows about. They have had this completely life-changing set of experiences that drives them to start writing compact material. But for a band like XTC, they couldn't really get arrested up until the Sex Pistols happened. They'd been playing music for five full years. What punk rock represented, it was just literally an announcement. It's like everybody who worked in the music industry came in one Monday, oh, shit, there's a new genre. All it means is there's a new market. The taste has changed. Kids are buying something different. They're dressing different, they're acting different, and they're buying different. There's only two ways you make money in the music industry. You either predict trends or you service them. But what made the punk rock situation so convoluted was that there were all these different responses. Suddenly you had new record labels and that was just unheard of. I mean, you had A&M and a couple of things happen, Island, but those labels were molded after established record industry ideas. There was a bunch of bloat and there was a bunch of payola within the machinery of the record industry that needed to get stripped out. So that at the same time sort of gets detonated. And that makes this so strange because all of a sudden there was this anxiety that you sold out. You, you can't be on a major label. That's not punk. That is the lasting legacy of punk rock, is the anxiety it created among music fans and to some extent the music industry over having to suddenly worry about the authenticity of where music was coming from. You know, you think about a band that will certainly come up later as I start talking about this, The Police, and The Stranglers, too. These guys were like 35. <laughs> Everybody in the Sex Pistols is literally teenagers. You know, the Buzzcocks, all this young excitement. That's sort of one thing that's happening. But then you have like really seasoned, talented musicians. 
And to an extent, so were XTC. But they were also relatively young, so there wasn't any question of like the kind of grotesque, established, seasoned musician jumping on the market that's been created by punk rock. So the record industry has to figure out how to convince kids that these bands are cool. And the bands have to convince kids that they're cool and authentic. And XTC's first two records are completely about this problem. Science fiction that burns my fingers. So right at the top, you got that kind of oafish wordplay stuff that Andy Partridge is so, so adored for. Science friction, you know, a silly pun. But, you know, friction, there's nothing but friction going on uh, in the in the music world that they want to participate in. And then when you get to their first album, White Music, the single is This Is Pop. You know, a, basically a, a declaration of rebellion against the obsession with genre marketing and focus on what is and isn't cool or isn't isn't punk. And it's got the goddamn lost chord in it. The lost chord from A Hard Day's Night. Both of these songs and a lot of this material... Their first wave up until Drums and Wires, these first two albums, White Music and Go To, it's almost like he has to go for a run, like he has to go for a jog. He's got to get a sweat on. And when you see the videos too, he's just so twisted up in a ball, Andy Partridge is trying to just, like he can't, what am I supposed to be? Do I have to get up here and like spit at the camera? Do I have to be Elvis Costello and, you know, sneering and not give a shit about anything? Like I'm from a fucking small town in Swindon. I like my small town life. And I'm getting married, which is extremely unusual. And the other problem, too, is they're on Virgin. And Virgin is the coolest fucking place in the world. You know, you walk in the office, everyone's smoking weed and, you know, fucking swanning around and caftans and whatever the fuck else was on trend at that time. Uh, And so they were considered a very ultra label that serviced all kinds of different stuff and let artists be artists. They were artists first, etc. They got the pistols. And XTC were one of their big bankable things that they thought could get on the radio without the British music industry literally censoring the charts so that no one knows that people are buying Sex Pistols records. They blanked the charts twice so that you couldn't see the single was even what the name of it was to go buy it because they would be giving them advertising if they did that. And they refused to help this band. It was it was really considered that offensive. Being on Virgin, you know, the sort of center of the universe for cool at that time, XTC gets access to an incredibly hip producer and John Leckie. And Hypnosis designs the cover, which was totally crazy. Hypnosis did all the Led Zeppelin album covers. They're the most famous, you know, graphic design firm in the country, maybe in the world at that point. And, you know, interestingly, Andy Partridge was trained as a graphic designer. He was a, a comic enthusiast as a kid and he actually designed and drew a lot of XTC's uh, caricatures and artwork over the years the cover of Oranges and Lemons that great uh, magical mystery tour sort of pastiche Andy Partridge drew that himself Andy Partridge was a total autodidact like it's crazy he almost invented Jenga like I'm not even joking he came up with this he invented like five real fully formed board games and one of the games he invented was this tower game called Babel and uh 
he actually showed this on a BBC special in, in the 80s. They had this series called Play at Home, where they would go interview artists, etc. He demonstrated these games he had. One of them is this value-based tower game called Babel. It, it misses a number of the aspects of Django, but it's just really funny. Because Django was invented in like 1983 at the London Toy Fair. And, and he had made this, I think, in the early 80s, uh, you know, or really thinking almost along the same lines. Uh, he was obsessed with toy soldiers the little tin toy soldiers that you play with and miniatures and toy trains and you know all of these things uh and his obsession with pastoral english fairy tale linguistic tricks etc unfortunately all of this really comes out of him having had a very traumatic childhood uh, his mother had a nervous breakdown due to his father's infidelity she took him to the doctor because she was unable to deal with just having a responsibility in her life he wasn't allowed to have friends over he wasn't allowed to have toys and the fucking doctor put him on Valium as if it was a vitamin when he was 12. Like his brain isn't even done developing yet. It's really disturbing. You know, when you look back knowing what we know now, he was basically turned into an addict by a doctor. It's really, really unsettling. You know, and today in 2019, you're not going to find a lot of people with a lot of sympathy for Andy Partridge because he has now for the third time um, published some really indefensible anti-Semitic comments. I mean, he can wiggle all he wants, but he's a fucking grown man. And it's just, he made it even worse, you know, because he's like, oh, well, my friends are Jewish and they were involved. My wife's Jewish, blah, blah. It's just a mess, uh, you know, and I don't want to dote on that too much, except to say that I don't think he, he can excuse it. It's a very different thing from what happened to Elvis Costello. Like when Elvis Costello used the N-word, shit-faced, blind, drunk, he was in his early 20s in America for the first time basically walking alcoholic uh at that point you know he's in a bar with this you know bloated old world rolling stone buddies steven stills band and all these american you know giant blonde people antagonizing him calling him a limey and and making fun of british music and all this stuff and he's been apologizing for it his whole life it didn't help the way that the, you know, the record label and he even responded to it by holding this stupid fucking press conference. Like, you know, I don't think it represented a personal conviction of his. I don't think he was personally deeply racist. I think he employed a racist term out of blind rage and frustration and intimidation in front of people who represented, you know, this huge foreign world of power and arrogance. You know, it's a tough thing. Unfortunately, the second album, uh, you know, due to the success and the constant touring and everything that happens around a first album, like you're never going to get more promotion and more touring setup than your major label debut. And XTC had to work their asses off. And so predictably, the sophomore album, they don't have any time to write it. They really don't have any time to record it either. Uh, and it just really doesn't have much of their strongest songwriting. You also have the problem with Barry Andrews, because at this point, XTC has had a keyboardist, a wacky keyboardist. And the wacky keyboardist is taking up way too much of the stage attention, the press attention, and he's starting to think this is his band. And so Go To is sort of like, they're not really paying a lot of attention. They're not sitting down and thinking about what they could write. They're just kind of going through the motions, writing on tour, etc. 
the cover did not help. It's super famous. It's this like, you know, anti-manifesto that everything is a product and commercial trickery and marketing and there's no way around it yet. You know, we have to promote the album in the marketplace or how would you hear it? It has to become a physical object that has to transact. It just, again, it's this double whammy of the cover being so fucking onerously pretentious and the music really not being there. So being on Virgin, they call their own shot and they reach out to Steve Lillywhite. I mean, Steve Lillywhite ends up becoming, just like John Leckie, one of the most dominant producers of the 80s. They basically had the two guys who invent, change the entire production of drums. Steve Lillywhite and Hugh Padgham. Townhouse Studios had just been made. It was all brick. It's really fucking weird decision because it creates all these reflections and it was also tall walls. All of these weird environmental decisions add up to this incredible opportunity to play with those reflections to have the reflections be louder than they naturally would be and then cut them off with an artificial hard stop what we they call a gate it matured kind of from where it was on like let's say life begins at the hop there's the snare is pretty much okay on life begins at the hop it's the toms uh, particularly in that stop when they say boys and girls like that fucking floor tom is amazing Steve Lillywhite had done uh, this Ultravox record that a lot of people, it's sort of like uh, Japan's Tin Drum. There were these albums that, while the albums weren't necessarily huge, the way they sounded was so amazing and astonishing that everybody grabbed everybody involved with them. It happened with My Bloody Valentine's Loveless. Alan Mulder got pulled by Billy Corgan for Siamese Dream and, and everyone else wanted a piece of him. Uh, it happened back, Dave Stewart, the Rhythmics, when the Rhythmics came out, it was like, what the, nobody could believe the clarity this guy was getting. And it was like just some guy, right? And so XTC had the, you know, the pick of the litter here and it worked out fantastic. Drums and wires, you know, the track list is just like, it opens with, in America, their most famous song, arguably, Making Plans for Nigel. This is also, Making Plans for Nigel is how I found out about XTC. Not because I heard it, even though it was pretty much a legacy staple on college radio all throughout the 80s. The reason I heard XTC is one of my favorite songs was a song on a record my sister had, Love and Rockets, Seventh Dream of a Teenage Heaven. And there's a song called Dog End of a Day Gone By on it, which is like this proto-shoegaze dirge with this just thundering drum progression. And I was just barely learning to play drums as a kid, starting with my first kit. And I got to go into a record fair. I think I was 14. I got to go into a record fair in Boston. And, you know, I was talking to this guy who was, you know, had his pop-up shop essentially of, of all these vinyl and cassettes and everything. And he's like, you know, what are you into? I was like, I just, I want to hear all this different stuff. Is this any good? Is this any good? And he said, well, what do you like? I mean, I can help you if you can tell me what you like. 
He's like, I love this uh, this Love and Rockets album. I love this song. Have you heard this? And he's like, it's a total ripoff of Making Plans for Nigel. And uh, he sold me drums and wires on vinyl. I wasn't I wasn't buying CDs yet. And I listened to it on my sister's record player, Techniques record player. And that's when I re it's another one of those moments when I was like, you can do that? Like Love and Rockets didn't get sued for doing this because it's a complete ripoff of the drum pattern from making plans for Nigel. Which to be fair, XTC is also open about the fact that they wrote this in response to Devo's version of Satisfaction. Because all musicians, anyone who was a musician first uh, and like not a poser was fucking blown away when they heard Devo's cover of I Can't Get No Satisfaction. XTC were extremely tightly paired with Devo at the beginning in terms of marketing because Virgin had Devo too. And the police because Ian Copeland and Miles Copeland, this like the people who are involved in music at this time. It is such a smaller community than kids realize. The history is not that expansive or hard to figure out. You just got to read some books. So Life Begins at the Hop comes out in advance of Drums and Wires because it's a non-album single, it's a it's an advanced single, etc. But it was also considered a pretty catchy sort of standalone tune in this like Nick Lowe kind of what's so funny about Peace, Love, and Understanding thing. It kind of twists the old like dance hall nostalgia on its head. Life Begins at the Hop is a Colin Molding song. It's his first single for XTC. And what happens? Making Plans for Nigel is the first song on Drums and Wires. It goes on the charts for three months, breaks the top 20. All of a sudden, Virgin's like, call molding, hit factory. Because to this point, XTC has gone their third album and they have nothing to show for it. On one hand, they're saying, you're an artist, we respect that and you can do whatever you want. Your creative process is the most important thing in the world. On the other hand, they're saying, we need some fucking hits. And as that tension, as it always does, gets less and less forgiving over time. You know, the deeper you get into the career and the more money the, the record company is invested in you, the more pressure there is on you to sell out. Drums and Wires is where they start to settle in a little bit. Uh, when You're Near Me, I Have Difficulty. That's a it's a great album cut on on this thing. Roads Girdle the Globe maybe is a stumble. But like Helicopter's great. And when you get toward the end of Side 2, the last three songs on this album, Outside World, Scissor Man, and even Complicated Game, these are pretty interesting uh, compositions. I mean, this is really where they start to think about, well, what do we want to do? What are we going to be? Because we've been this sort of 
chancer band that's writing music during a time, a time that's consumed by questions that are not musical. Can we make the music the focus again? Let's start doing that. And that's what Drums and Wires does. The apogee of this is Black Sea, XTC's fourth album. One of the best albums released in the 80s. thing is it, it kind of frees up Andy Partridge. It breaks him free of the tension of, you know, having had this guy, Barry Andrews, who was sort of like nudging him out of the way a little bit and just too loud and domineering. Then he gets out of that. And then all of a sudden, Colin Moulding's writing all the hits and Virgin thinks he's a, a, hit, a human hit factory. They, they sort of get this all ironed out with Black Sea. You got Towers of London, Sergeant Rock, and Respectable Street. These are all like really strong, um, lasting XTC cuts. And Molding still has a good a good contribution with Generals and Majors. That's a really strong song as well. It takes five albums for them to sort of become themselves, which is what English Settlement is. I mean, it's everything they wanted to do. You know, having grown up with Magical Mystery Tour and Sgt. Pepper, you never get over the music that you first hear, that you first embrace, and that you first live with. Nobody's allowed to invoke this during punk. You know, it's not cool to touch anything hippie. It's not, you can't talk about flower power and psychedelia that's completely out that's so out that it's you know the third rail On Black Sea and English Settlement, this is when Andy Partridge gets to explore those influences in his own songwriting. It's really inspiring, and not that many bands' discographies are inspiring. You know, if you sit down with all five of these records up through English Settlement, it's an incredible evolution. And Senses Working Overtime is, it's just one of the most clever, beautiful pieces of pop ever. You know, he hasn't gone overboard yet with this Shakespearean, you know, Francis Baconian pretentious. He, I mean, there's a point where he's walking around dressed as a rector with a giant scarf and gown. It's, I mean, I, they didn't do a concept album about Tristan and Isolt. I can't believe it. He disappeared so far up his ass. I mean, there are reasons for this. So during the Virgin period, XTC were a touring machine. They sent them all over the world. They got hitched up with the police. They also played with Talking Heads briefly. They were getting ready to become a headline band. What happens with English Settlement in 1982 is Andy Partridge's wife throws away his Valium. He, he gets shit-faced, says something horrible. I can't, you can't be melodramatic about this. It is very dramatic. There's not another person on the planet who has gone through what Andy Partridge went through. I don't believe that you are going to find a 12-year-old kid who has taken Valium as if it was a medicine to, quote, calm him down because his mother's a hysteric. 
having that chemical present in his body for all of those years through all of this stuff, having it become a crutch. I mean, he was, he was using it, abusing it as if it was this magic pill. He just had unbelievable whipsaw chemical reactions and was just overwhelmed continually. Uh, and, and having to perform and confront stages, people, crowds, made those things 10 times worse. I mean, he's tried to describe it variously. He said that there were points he just literally could not move his body. He could not get out of bed. His brain would not, he could not make his arms and his legs work. You know, they essentially said they're not going to tour anymore. And we're going to go, you know, become this like studio band. And we're going to become kind of Beatlesy in our attitude toward it and, and really build these songs up. And English settlement is the beginning of this change. Unfortunately, like any change, it doesn't go real smoothly. Mummer and the Big Express were not successful uh, at all in terms of sales or building on the um, legitimate international success of Census Working Overtime, which became a college radio hit in America. You know, Love on a Farm Boy's Wages sort of followed on from Census Working Overtime. It followed on a little bit too much. So, you know, for me of the two sort of generally considered weak records, Mummer's really pretty bad to me. Big Express has the lowest lows and the highest highs uh, of this sort of 83-84 Andy convalescence period. The low for me is I remember the sun. Like, I don't want to fucking hear you do trad jazz. What, what is this shit? There's some cute stuff, though. Like, I Bought Myself a Lyrebird is a fucking awesome little song. Uh, Everyday Story of a Small Town is even cute. And then there are, like, two big historic sort of hits here, which is All You Pretty Girls and Seagull Screaming Kisser Kisser. Uh, but the other side of the story for Seagull Screaming Kisser Kisser is this weird problem, which is Andy Partridge survives a marriage broken by infidelity. And he doesn't want to repeat that history. Well, when he was touring the world and being flown everywhere and getting all these opportunities, XTC got thrown on the Times Square soundtrack. This was one of the ways that record labels were trying to deal with punk new wave, which is compilations and soundtracks. Because most of these bands are never going to write more than two songs anyone's going to give a shit about. They're on the Times Square soundtrack. They get flown to New York for the premiere with a bunch of the other bands on that. It's this big party, all these mud club, downtown, 81, you know, New York party people are there. And Andy meets 
the daughter of the guy who wrote Serpico, Joe Wexler, his daughter, Erica. He meets her at the premiere for this. Whatever it was about her appearance and her, her kind of demeanor and the way she carried herself, he just saw this, this girl and was like, oh my God, oh no. Because he just, he, could, he literally couldn't stop looking at her. It was like, it was like a tick. He just kept like looking over and making sure he knew where she was in the room kind of a thing. Like, what is that? I got to I gotta figure out about that thing. And so he had this kind of unrequited affection with her all through the 80s. I would say he probably handled it as honorably as you could. the time of Big Express, they're really frustrated. They know Virgin's sort of done with them, doesn't have a lot of faith in them. They started, again, getting sort of like pretentious ideas. They did a Christmas single as the Three Wise Men. And around this time is when this idea happens of abandoning the XTC thing and becoming this other band where they can just openly indulge in their obsession with, you know, Village Green Preservation Society and fairy singles from around that time from all these different artists, you know, silly trick singles and goofs and the monkeys and head and all these things. You know, they know they can't get fully into that with XTC because it would just be silly. They have a sort of brand as XTC. So they start this band called Dukes of Stratosphere. And they make all these pastiche goof songs, um, you know, calling back to the Beatles and stuff. And they do a couple of videos where they, you know, mockingly portray the Beatles. And it was fun. But it turned out like there was this massive revival of that kind of jangle, you know, rain Beatles era music happening in America. Paisley Underground, right? There's these bands out here on the West Coast, like the Rain Parade and the Long Riders and all these bands doing this stuff, which was very middling and, and didn't really have a big, you know, breakthrough kind of moment. And as only could happen to XTC, this album outsells anything else they've done by like a factor of three in England and is, you know, is one of the only things that makes a dent for them in America. But Virgin is at the end of their tether with this band. And despite the promising returns on the Dukes of Stratosphere project. They tell them in no uncertain terms, they are working with a big name American producer on their next album or else there won't be a next album. <laughs> 